Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Macro View, episode 22. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. All right. So we have Kyle here. Give us a hello, hello Kyle. Yeah. All right, so now we got it all worked out. That was weird. As soon as it started, basically, we weren't able to we weren't able to hear you. Okay, so the the debate's going to last sixty minutes. We we kind of agreed to the following rules: just five minutes each, and we're going to try to keep time of ourselves, and we'll let each other know when it's when it's been five minutes, and and to close up the uh, the statement at that point. So, Kyle, do you want to start with opening statement? Uh, Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, all right, I just I just want to say uh, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, this is a very important debate for uh, the libertarian movement. Um, you know, these are two different philosophies. They have they're different paths. They have different strategies to achieve them, and they're different messages that we're trying to spread to people. So we're we're working at cross purposes here as far as a movement, um, and, and we're spreading mixed messages. So uh, I'm going to start with a, a Mises quote. Um, Mises is my uh, main intellectual influence. Um, you know, I was a former Rothbardian, but uh, once I realized that Mises disagreed with Rothbard, I switched um, over to Mises. So uh, this is the quote from Mises' book, Liberalism. Uh, and when he says liberalism, he's speaking of classical liberalism, not modern liberalism. And uh, it, it was a philosophy of uh, limited government. So here's the quote. He says, uh, liberalism is not anarchism, nor has it anything whatsoever to do with anarchism. The liberal understands quite clearly that without resort to compulsion, the existence of society would be endangered, and that behind the rules of conduct, whose observance is necessary to assure peaceful human cooperation, must stand the threat of force if the whole edifice of society is not to be continually at the mercy of any one of its members, One must be in a position to compel the person who will not respect the lives, health, personal freedom, or private property of others to acquiesce acquiesce in the rules of life in society. This is the function that the liberal doctrine assigns to the state, the protection of property, liberty, and peace. Uh, And that quote is from liberalism. So, um, you know, in contrast to Murray Rothbard, who is an enemy of the state, Uh, Mises puts the state at the center of his philosophy. It's the cornerstone of his philosophy. Uh, It basically holds it all together um, by enforcing the rules of capitalism. Uh, In another quote he has, which I'm not going to read, he says that uh, the market requires the state um, as its enforcement mechanism. So um, that's... uh, that's about my, my introductory statement. I, uh, like I said, I really, I, I, I've been antagonistic towards an anarchist and anarcho-capitalist for quite some time now. And um, I've kind of developed a reputation on, on Facebook as being 
an antagonizer, but uh, I, I think it's important that we um, that we get on the right the right page, which in my opinion is minarchism, limited government, and not anarchism. Thanks so much for that, Kyle. I, I appreciate your opening statement. So, in uh, my argument for no state. Um, I will be making the following points. I'll, I'll make the point that a minimal state is, and this is my first point, that a minimal state is a fantasy world and does not exist in a sustainable fashion, that all organisms grow. That includes collective social organisms, which is what a state is, and that a minimal state before long becomes a large state. A minimal state still maintains the arbitrary claim to legitimize violation of positive rights, that is, rights that are extra-legal and come from one's humanity. And even in the, small, even in the, the days of the smallest minarchy utopia in the U.S. in the late 1800s, individual rights were violated over and over and over again. And the answer every time the state violated individual rights in mass, whether it was local government, state government, or federal government, the answer was always for more government and always has been. The reason for this is, is specifically their claim to, the claim to legitimacy that territorial sovereigns have over their subjects or their citizens. When governments do things that no one else will get away with doing, even if we don't agree with it, many people just kind of shrug their shoulders. So take asset forfeiture, for, an exa for example. Most people would be appalled by the idea of some hacker hacking in and taking money out of somebody's bank account without their, their permission. But yet that's what the IRS and law enforcement agencies do. And law enforcement agencies, it's gotten even worse in some places where they'll just swipe somebody's debit card or credit card when they pull them over. And this is true with eminent domain as well, which is another form of asset forfeiture. No one would ever let a private corporation without the help of government force a private homeowner to sell their house to them at a value that they deemed market value arbitrarily in order to turn around and build anything, let alone private property use, like, like has been done recently and was upheld with Kilo. And that happens here and around the world. It's not, it, there's nowhere else where th things like this is really bad, arbitrary violations of positive rights don't happen. So the second argument I'm going to make is that the essential functions of government are extremely marketable. And he brought up the idea of markets and markets need government without them. But that's absolutely not true. In fact, the Amsterdam stock market is a great example of extra legal financial markets in which literally contracts were not even enforceable by law because interest was illegal. And that good interest was illegal in many countries back in, in the days of the Middle Ages. Contracts weren't enforceable by law, but yet there still was a robust market for financial contracts. The third point that I'm going to make is that utopia does not exist. And the idea is, is you know, you've got to take that into the assumption that, that anarcho-capitalism isn't aiming for a utopia. What, they're, what it's saying is that this would just be better because there would be a lot more accountability amongst governing bodies if they were not territorial sovereigns and if they're 100% voluntary and opted into. The fourth point that I'm going to make is that warring is largely out of fashion and that pillage is known to be unprofitable. The state is the primary reason for war. They propagandize war and throughout history have either provided manipulative incentives for military and war personnel 
or have actually conscripted their subjects to military service. In order to get people to be willing to go to war, you either have to give them incentives that the market can't readily provide, like a status as a hero, in the, or in the, you know, in the past they gave them plots of land, like in the, in, in, uh, the British Empire, or they can give them positions in governments, in non-democratic societies and authoritative societies. And the U.S., we've had both conscripted military service and what I call hero incentives, and this combination goes back as far as nation states still. In a stateless society, it's not a society without rules, and this is the fifth point that I'm going to make. It's simply a society in which the stakeholders and the owners voluntarily opt into a set of rules, much the way the Amish have rules but allow, at a certain age of adulthood, they allow their, their children to go out into a community and go outside the community and go and see the world for themselves and come back and decide, do I want to live that way or do I want to live, live this way? And it's 100% voluntary, and they don't look uh, upon their children with ill will if they decide to leave the community. Now, obviously, I'm not advocating that we become on, Amish and give up technological advances, but what I'm saying is that having the, a system where upon adulthood people can choose whether or not they want to live under that system of rules or be able to opt in, into a different system of rules and go and have their own private property rights that that would be a much better system given the framework that we frameworks that we've had laid out by past intellectuals and some things that, that we can, you know, just think about the way that they work in the market today. I think that it is a system that, that, you know, though Kyle would think that it's most likely, if not a hundred percent likely to fail, I think that it's very likely to work so long as, uh, so long as you have a people that understand that productivity is, is more profitable and more enjoyable and gives more utility than does pillage and warring. So with that, Kyle, thank you. And since this is my podcast, I'm going to pose the first question to you and you can use the next five minutes to either rebut my opening statement or to answer the question or both or make your own statement, whatever you want to do with it. So in your mind, what are the essential functions of a state? Okay, um, you know, the the primary purpose of a state is uh, protection of life and property from violent and fraudulent attacks. Um, so it would, uh, it would uh, um, you know, enforce laws, it would protect people, it would uh, judge, judge disputes, adjudicate disputes, arrest criminals, lock them up. So typically the functions are listed as the police power, um, courts, prisons, and armed forces, which are all compulsive uh, or compulsory apparatuses. Um, it's an agency of force. Now, we, just, we debate endlessly online over the administration of public property, which would be roads. Does the state do roads or not? Um, I don't have a decisive answer to that. Um, you know, the logistics of road, of private roads are very confusing to me. The logistics of privatizing the sky um, and oceans, large bodies of water that are shared by a giant community, uh, I, I don't see how those could be privatized. But, you know, that's not really the position that uh, I'm here to fight for. I'm here to fight for the law and order, national defense, court system, um, that, that to me would be the minarchist state that I'm defending here. It's, um, you know, it's a governing body is what it is. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I took notes during your opening statement. Um, I guess I have a little bit of time left. I, I did want to talk about, uh, the claim to legitimacy, which was your first point. 
Um, a lot of people don't understand where government gets its legitimacy from. Uh, it gets its legitimacy. They'll say, oh, it's, it's just basically a gang. It's like a, the mafia, and it just basically took over uh, against the people's will. It, it's the opposite of that. It, it's the will of the people, or the will of the majority in particular, that gives the state its power. So it's, it ha- when it has public support, when it has majority support, that's why it's so power, powerful, because the people are behind it. The, it it's a communal um, organization. So, uh, you know, to say that it's not legitimate, you're actually denying the will of the people or the will of the majority of the people that live in that area that desire that governing body. So who holds, and this would be my response to you, is, is who holds that governing body accountable? Because it seems to me that historically – you just you've never really had actual any actual accountability and i would i would point out the fact that there's been millions of ceos cfos chief marketing officers heads of companies all over the world maybe millions is an exaggeration but certainly hundreds of thousands over the years if you're talking about public and private companies firing of managers and it happens all the time and yet there's been in, in us history which I guess you would argue for going back to sort of more of an originalistic view of the, you know, of the constitution and having a separation of powers who holds that accountable because in federal government, there's, there's, there's never been a president who was impeached and convicted. So, I mean, you've had, a, you've had a couple of presidents be impeached. You've had Nick Nixon resign, but then be pardoned. Mm-hmm. So who actually holds criminals in, you know, because there's definitely I know politicians like to say CEOs, you know, you have too big to jail and all of that rhetoric, but that's a bunch of bullshit. I mean, especially in the financial industry, people go to jail all the time for breaking rules. But it seems to me that except for in really egregious and obvious cases at local levels, people in government just happen to be above the law and in some cases actually place themselves above the law, even in a country that has a constitutional framework like the U.S., and therefore I would, I would posit that having more of a corporate governance structure and having cooperative ownership and having actual real positive incentives for good management and for, to create abundance as opposed to drag out a problem and spend as much money as possible on it, which is what the bureaucratic state does, that's how they grow, that's how they get bigger budgets, I would posit that having a corporate cooperative structure would just be far more effective for the delivery of those essential functions that you deem necessary. Yeah, let me, let me respond to that. Um, on a small level, if you have an individual, uh, say a crooked mayor or something like that, there are internal checks within the government to deal with that. You have for the police, you have an internal affairs departments, um, at higher levels, you have, you have courts, you know, court systems that um, judge uh, when politicians are have done wrong. So there are some internal checks. But on a macro level, as far as the overall direction of the government, it, it's up to the people of that country to check their own government. They're the ultimate check, and and it always does actually reflect the will of the majority. I mean, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't reflect the will of libertarians. But our government is almost a, a perfect mirror of the um, the composition of our population, which is, you know, the, at least the politically active comp- um, 
component, which is half half Republican, half Democrat. You know, we have a lot of people that like these uh, these foreign wars. We've got a lot of people that want a wall built. Um, we have a lot of people that support Obamacare. You know, these these are very popular programs. Obama was very popular with the left. Trump was very popular with the right. So it ultimately, even a totalitarian dictatorship like uh, Nazi Germany, um, it, there was public support. I mean, Hitler in his heyday was extremely popular with the Germans. And, you know, that popularity enabled him to do all the things that he was able to do. You really can't govern as an unpopular ruler. Uh, the people just won't go along. And a great example of that was in Egypt recently when the people took to the streets because they didn't like uh, Hosani Mubarak. And, you know, he was forced to step down because the people just would not accept him as their president any longer. Okay, so like, first off, I would respond by saying Hitler did govern and took over most of Europe until he was, until he was murdered, basically, or was on the verge of being murdered and committed suicide, as the story goes. So mm-hmm. I, I, just, I don't think that that's a valid argument. I think that your argument just points out the flaws in the idea of the will of the majority and how the will of the majority can lead to some of the most egregious positive rights violations. And I'm not talking about rights that of, you know, okay, well there's some things that you look, I don't agree with Murray Rothbard that a parent's allowed to let their kids starve. So I'll say that that's not a right. You don't have the right to let something that you own be neglected because that, in my opinion, even though that would probably go against most anarcho-capitalists, in my opinion, I think that there is a certain level of responsibility to take care of things that you own. And if you don't, then there should be, and, and I do think in an anarcho-capitalist society, there would be a way to deal with that within a smaller community and through things like exile and, and forced and shaming. And I think that things like that are very valuable tools. And I'll go back to the example of holding people accountable for even minor not just rights violations, but for, for going against, uh, you know, popular opinion or for even, I want to say being politically incorrect, but I don't like the fact that that that's the word that I have to use essentially for saying things that are offensive to a small group of people. You've had a number of, of corporate executives over the past, number of of years over the past decade, at least since I've been following the market, a number of big case scenarios where CEOs have been ousted for something that they said, not not even something that they did, but something that they said. And that goes back to what Adam Smith talked about as the the theory of moral sentiments and how public opinion in a private sphere with an invisible hand actually gets a lot more done for issues that people care about, and it moves the ball forward far faster than bureaucracy and government can. And my main argument is, is not that it would be perfect. My main argument is that it would be far more efficient than the system that we have where we wait a couple of years and go and vote and wait another couple of years and go and vote. It'd be much easier to opt out and to secede and to, to move around to change the rules locally and be able to try to pursue you know, what the founders deemed as a more perfect union and what I believe to be what needs to be a voluntary union because of the interdependence of trade and the division of labor. That that's what gives us the desire to not war against each other. It's not state. It's not laws. It's not rules. It's the desire to have a better life and to be more pr- productive 
and to leave our, our, the next generation off, our children, to leave them off better than we, were, we came in. And I think that that is a very powerful and strong desire, and that even absent of a state apparatus, not saying that you know, it's tomorrow, but let's say that tomorrow we woke up and, and just everybody that worked for the government decided they were going to quit and, and go get a piece of land and start farming. I think generally people will come together and start handling those services. And there's back to the point that the, the services are extremely marketable. I mean, these services are extremely, extremely marketable and profitable if handled properly. The problem is that government management is extremely inefficient. It has perverse incentives. So, you know, you, like you said, court, law, rule enforcement, basic, basic infrastructure, national defense. If let's take, let's say it was a, a, just for the thought experiment, a pure democracy, and you got four issues that you got to fund. You had four issues that you got to fund, and you rank, rank order voted. And you had a slate of 50 issues, but four of them actually got funded. Courts, law, rule enforcement, it, it, you know, courts, law, and rule enforcement, basic infrastructure, and national defense, those would be one through four on 99% of people's lists. So to say that they're not marketable, well, if you just took government and put the word corporation on front of, in front of it, or if you just took you didn't even you don't even need some of those structures. If you just understood that there is a there are entrepreneurs who be who would be more than happy to find profitable solutions to some of these issues and do it in a way that's way more fair than the existing system. That the, one of my arguments is that the existing system has a lot of flaws because it's impossible to hold the people that are in charge accountable because of the inefficiency of a system of democratic voting. And the everyday dollar vote is a much more efficient system of holding people accountable. Uh, well, there's a lot to respond to there. Um, I'll just try to take it one at a time or, or one, one thing. Um, you know, when we talk about democracy, usually the comparison is democracy versus autocracy, um, like a, either a monarchy or a dictator, and, and where the people really don't have a chance, any kind of option to peacefully change the regime. So the benefit of democracy compared to that system is that if we have a really bad guy, you know, we can, the people can vote and we can adjust the administration to the will of the people through voting, to the will of the majority, I should say. Uh, you're actually arguing for another alternative, which is uh, almost private governance, um, I, I guess, or voluntary governance. Uh, I, I have a problem with that term, voluntary governance, because it, it's, it's really, governing really isn't voluntary. When you are going to make a rule and somebody breaks that rule, the, the punishment is not voluntary to them. You know, or if you have a private protection agency, it, it's voluntary when you pay them, but when they go and crack down or use force against someone else, it's not, it's not voluntary to that person. So like all these ANCAPs who say they're voluntary have fully in mind that they're going to use, employ private coercion uh, to enforce private property rights or to, or to protect life and property and enforce their rules. So I, I really take exception to the notion that governance is voluntary. It, it might be voluntary to you as the purchaser, but it's not voluntary to the person being governed. And I, I would make the argument that, that in excessive use of force against criminals, 
that that would go way down in a private in, in a privatized governance system, and simply for the fact that juries would not look upon people who shot young black teenagers in the back as they're running away as possibly okay, you know, and possibly allowed to do that, like we just saw happen in North Carolina and like we've seen happen many, many times, and not just with black people, with white people, with Hispanic people. With I read a story a number of years ago where a lady in Florida fit the description of a van that they thought had drugs in it. She's an 80-year-old lady, and they ripped her out of the car. That would never occur in a system where somebody – where one incident, one incident would ruin that company, where they become uninsurable again. They become uninsurable, where one incident would make – Nobody else wants to pay into that private corporation, and they go with people that have better systems of, of punishment and better systems of moving people that were nuisances to a community out, out of the community. There's ways to do it. There's technology that can do it. You can make it a very uncomfortable living space for them without having any physical harm done to them. And look, I'm just saying that it wouldn't be as bad as what you see now. I mean, what would it have to look like? I'd put the question to you is what the, what would it have to actually look like for you to say that police don't do a good job currently? And then on the, on the national defense side, I think from an economic calculation standpoint, it would make no sense to go and wage aggression overseas. What you would actually have is you have an apparatus of defense. It'd most likely be paid for by property insurance companies, large cross border, cross state property insurance companies that had a reason to invest in strong national defense and would also be able to put out bounties in the case of imminent attack, which would allow for a number of different operators, private operators to be able to take to take to arms, to be able to defend against them and their neighbor's land for the sake of freedom from, from foreign tyranny. So uh, I just don't see it. You wouldn't have, you know, bombs being dropped out of airplanes in this world, right? You'd have really incredible missile defense systems and the type of stuff that Reagan talked about with Star Wars that would probably be more realistic under this type of scenario because you'd have a positive purpose to invest in that type of long-term, long-horizon technology because the ability to lower premiums then, and at the, which, would, which means that you'd be able to have a, a much larger base of customers. If you had that, you'd be able to then you know, make a lot more money if you had a larger base of customers, lower premiums, and less less uh, less chance of there being an insurance claim coming against you. So, from a standpoint of of the way that money is used within that apparatus, I would once again argue, like, what would it have to look like for them to be doing a bad job? And don't you think that where where people try to save face and where people try to save money? that you would have a lot less bomb dropping and a lot less shooting of teenagers in a private corporate governance situation. And yeah, we have to have laws, right? None, neither of us, but what I'm saying is how are those laws enforced today versus in the event that you had a competitive uh, situation where, where different private law enforcement groups could make, could shame another law enforcement group for letting something egregious happen under one of their employment's watch. I just, I happen to believe that it's impossible to hold the state accountable. And I, I see all the time corporations being held accountable and above and beyond accountable. 
So I, I just don't see that as, as a valid argument because you're right. Yeah. There's these essential functions, but they fail at doing it in a way that doesn't violate individual rights. They, they are, they are horrible at it. Basically. They're not very good at it. So I just ask you like, what would it have to look like for you to say, okay, yeah, I agree. They're not very good at it. Well, I think that a lot of ANCAPs tend to focus on the negative. You know, they focus on the drug war. They focus on police brutality. Uh, They don't typically look at the instances where, you know, the serial killer or the guy that shot up the church was arrested and and put in jail where he belongs. Um, There's plenty of instances where people do get justice through the court system, where they have their dispute, um, you know, resolved through the court system. And, you know, they, they need that authority over both parties in order to resolve that dispute and so that that dispute doesn't continually keep escalating into an arms race between two, pri- two conflicting private interests. And well, at a certain if you, point. If you, and, and yet, Never mind. Never mind. Uh, go ahead. I was, okay, so I was just going to say at a certain point, it no longer becomes worth fighting the legal battle, right? That's why you have a certain number. I mean, even in today's system, you say to, ar- to a, you know, ra- a race to arms. I mean, that's what you have with the, def- with the public defender and you don't get a public defender. You, you have, you know, ACLU come in and appeal the case and go to an appeal court. I mean, you still have that and you still eventually have multiple levels of confirmation of a professional legal opinion. And sometimes it's wrong. It's a lot. I, I happen to believe that it would be wrong a lot less under this system. And I also happen to believe in what the founders of this country believed in. I think one of the things that's most egregious about uh, not follow the, one of the things that we don't follow in this country is one of the most egregious things is the idea that, you know, I would rather let 999 people that are guilty walk free than to let one innocent man be put in prison. And I think that you'd have a lot fewer innocent people be putting in, being put in prison under a system where you had a private legal opinion and you had secondary legal opinions who would be able to say, wait, let's take a look, better look at this case. You missed this or you missed that. I'm willing to take a second look at this case. I think you'd have a lot less people that are being punished for something that they did do, that they didn't do. And to me, when the state punishes somebody for something that they didn't do, that's far worse. That's far worse than when somebody commits a crime and through technicality, uh, uh, because the state acted improperly, or in my situation, because the private governance uh, organization acted improperly in the investigation and the arrest or whatever, I, I am much more comfortable with those people being let free than I am with innocent people being held in a cage. I think you'd get a lot less of that under private private legal. Well, I, I do want to get to the, the meat of the uh, argument against anarchy, which is that, uh, in, in my opinion, we have a completely different conception of what anarchy looks like. Uh, and, and to me, anarchy is, is faction wars. Um, anarchy is uh, large factions of people with sort of similar political views fighting for dominance in society. So... You know, there might be, um, you know, 30 million people who want socialism. There might be uh, 30 million people who want social democracy, 30 million people who want conservatism. So what you get is these large groups 
that simply refuse to comply to any effort at private governance, um, you know, they, they're not afraid to use violence. They're not afraid to organize armies. Um, you know, they, they, it's, it's the differences of opinion that people have over how society should be organized and what the rules should be. And that's where you get these, this fighting. And so to me, I just don't think that any private entity is going to be strong enough to get these people to conform to ANCAP law. So I, I would answer that in a couple of ways. Again, it is not the state that creates order. What creates order is the division of labor and inter, inter, interrelated trade and the, the interdependence that trade creates. So that's, I would start off with that, that the order is not created by the state. If anything, chaos began being created when kings decided to take over land and claim it for themselves and take it from indigenous people. And the result of all of that was that I would say thousands of years behind technologically today than what we otherwise should be. So I'd say that order is created by the division of labor and interdependent relationships that result from the division of labor and trade. So I think that that's the first view, you know, difference in our views is that, that where order come from, comes from, you believe it comes from the state. I believe that it's damaged by the state. And this, the second point that I would make in regards to warring factions is that that's pretty much what we have now. And that's one of the biggest issues. And one of the biggest issues with a state in general is that there's no such thing as a peaceful uprising. You mentioned earlier, and I didn't get to get to it in one of my earlier points, but you mentioned earlier that, you know, people can vote out bad people and vote in good people. When does that really happen? Cause I'm, I've been waiting for that to happen, but it seems to well, me, it, it seems to me that we just keep voting in worse and worse people. And occasionally you get someone who's eh, maybe okay in the middle. But it just seems to me that, that every – and if what you're saying is that if the problem is that everybody believes that it's okay as long as they're the majority to violate each other's rights. See, I just – I think that the, the problem is, is that it, there's, a, there's a root problem, and that is the goodies that are given out, that there's, there's yeah. violations that government is, is constantly pursuing. So people say, hey, if they're going to do it. Why not do it for things that I'm in favor of, things that will benefit my pocketbook or things that – there is no such thing as once you have a state, there is no such thing as equality. It becomes – because they have that false claim to legitimacy, or maybe it's a legitimate claim to legitimacy, okay? So get in, in your world, that even if they have a legitimate claim to legitimacy, that is specifically what – I've even heard people because of that go on to make the argument that things like the second amendment are obsolete because you know the u.s government would just destroy an uprising that there's no way that people could uprise and that just furthers my point that there's no such thing as this minimal state but i personally don't believe that i don't think that at least in america i don't think that the people in the military would take orders and turn arms arms on their brothers i think that there is something culturally different about America. And I think that that also goes back, even though a lot of us forget it, it goes back to the fact that we are interrelated and interdependent on trade. But even in the example of, of an uprising where people disagree with, with certain laws, you had the war against the, the war between the states. So you end, up in the, you end up in this really weird world where you're like, okay, well, I think 
you know, government is allowed to, based on the majority's view, violate rights. And I, I also believe that most people are good enough to not vote for really horrible rights violations, but then that's just constantly proven wrong. People vote in favor of constant, uh, you know, constant rights violations. And I'd say the next point is that one, I saw you make a point on, on Facebook earlier that the rich, the rich would be able to win at the expense of the poor. But in, in, in that, I mean, that's just a Dickensian view of capitalism. And I just fundamentally disagree with that. I think that the, the Scrooge caricature is, totally false that in a free that the Scrooge character is actually propped up by the state in a free society, free of competition and intellectual property rights. Competition would step in on the basis of the fact that that guy is a douchebag asshole who doesn't help anybody. And he's got all this money and does no charity. And I think that you already see that happening today. I mean, look at situations like Donald Sterling, even, even, even worse, the, the guy, the founder of Lululemon just said, Oh, well, some women shouldn't buy my pants. And the next thing you know, he's being ousted from the company. I just the corporate structure and the private governance structure is much more accountable to both decency and non-violation of rights. Because I mean, if people are are, are upset about the fact that the guy said some women shouldn't buy my pants because they don't have bought the right body for it, then they're definitely going to be upset if some corporate, you know, if some CEO of a private law enforcement agency starts, you know, tells his his enforcers to cross borders into this other community that's ruled by a different enforcement agency and start taking them hostage or something, start pillaging. People would be disgusted by that. Like, I just don't, maybe not in, in places like the Arab world, but we're talking about the developed and, and the Western world. And I just, I, I don't see that as being very realistic. I see that as the only way that happens is when there's no competition and it's a territorial sovereign with a false claim to legitimacy to use violent force, even in the event that there is not provable guilt that's been laid out by a jury of their peers. And that happens constantly. That happens all the time. There's legal legitimate uses of force. And in the event of, of, uh, uh, you know, what they call an imminent attack, and maybe sometimes it is imminent, maybe it isn't. I don't, I don't have CIA contacts that they're telling me, Hey, yeah, that's for sure. But it seems to me that, that it's the state that, that takes up aggression and nobody has a problem with it, that if it were a competitive private organization, that that would be the end of that organization. If, if they did something like that and it later came out to be, to be found out that it was, it was done on a, on a lie and that millions of people's lives were lost. I just don't see that as being able to get passed through in a private stakeholder society. Whereas the, the false claim to legitimacy or in your view, the legitimate claim to legitimacy the government has, it allows them to get away with it. And get away with a lot worse. Yeah, we've got to shorten up these responses a little bit, get a little more dialogue I, going I, here. I'm, I can't. Uh, I, 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 I agree. All. I'm. I am getting. I am getting a little bit extended, and you should interrupt me because is is. I'm <laughs> sure, as you know, and caps will go on forever. So, and I do. Yeah. Uh, although I don't, I don't agree with all of them. I do agree with. with you know, I, I do have some of the tendencies. So. Well, I, going back to majority, I want to say if, you know, if ANCAPs aren't the majority in a certain area, you know, they're not going to be able to establish a private private governance kind of society. I mean, you're not going to be able to pull it off if, you know, most of the population are Republicans and Democrats or socialists and nationalists. Those other factions are just going to form a new government. You know, it's really easy for them to set up a government. It takes five minutes. So it, it, it's just an organization. 
And people think like, right. oh, you can slay the state. You, you can't slay it. it. It's like trying to slay a committee as the form as people just sort create a new committee or trying to fight terror. You can't beat terror because somebody commits another act of terror and then the war on terror is back on. Well, right. if you beat the state, somebody just forms a new state. So you actually need to have the majority of the people in that particular country or that particular region on the same page. And that's where we're trying to get, I'm trying to get as a libertarian, a classical liberal is really what I prefer to call myself, you know, trying to pull ANCAPs into my sphere so that to make my faction larger so that we can try to take over the state and impose capitalism on social democrats and on nationalists and on um, socialists. You know, we want, we want private property capitalism to be the law of the land. They want a welfare state. They want a warfare state. You know, so we're actually in a struggle for dominance against them. And, uh, I, and, and it, it's just ANCAP's not going to work as long as they are the majority. So I I would say that that obviously that is factually 100% true and there's no argument against that that and and if the if the argument were to if the debate were were positioned as can this work right now or would anybody ever vote for this right now obviously the answer is no I mean look at what look at look at look at the people that we do vote for and so obviously that's not the case and yes, you would. I would actually argue that it wouldn't just have to be a, a majority or a supermajority. That it would. It would actually have to be um, that that everybody. It would have to be everybody. It'd have to be unanimous. You know. So, I mean, that it, it is a a far stretch to say that practically speaking, it's a political philosophy that will come into existence within our lifetime. On, on both utilitarian and moral grounds, however. I personally believe that it is a framework that should be tried somewhere. Um, and, you know, I think that there are, you know, there's talk about the bell aisle. Uh, I don't know if you know about that in Detroit. No. So there's a guy that was trying to buy basically, I, I, I'm not sure it's in the river and either it borders Canada or there's something unique about it where it's, I think it's like right on the border, like half of it's in Canada, half of it's in the U S and it's just basically a piece of land, a little strip of land. I think it's like 10 you know, or 11 square miles. Uh, so it's a pretty decent strip of land. And some guy was trying to buy it and wanted to turn it into essentially what would be a you know, special administrative region that would have you know, basically 100% voluntary opt-in rules and that would be a stakeholder society. So basically the citizens and the residents owned – the services and appointed management and all that, you know, kind of stuff, what we're talking about. So I think I'd love to see it exist. You know, I'd love to see small scale, um, you know, small scale in, in the sense of today's nation states, but something along the lines of a Singapore or a Macau um, somewhere close to home, somewhere nearby where people can see it. Um, I think that the, ex the extreme cases and one of the reasons that I argue in the affirmative of no state is that if you're able to make that argument, it becomes a lot easier. If you're able to show that these, uh, a lot of, a lot of these services that are deemed the essential services are things that are highly marketable. And the things that we would say, look, these aren't essential services and maybe half of the people think that they are and half of the people think that they aren't. Well, maybe the half of the people that think that they are will put up 50% more money 
you know, to provide them to themselves. Or maybe there are ways like, like you, you know, like what David Friedman talks about with broadcasting, where you have one product that has a positive consumer cost and a negative producer cost. You have another product that has a positive producer cost and a negative consumer cost. You package them together, you give it away. Situations like charitable housing could be done that way, where you have advertising or you have, you know, streaming videos on the outside of, of the, uh, the TV and, and on the outside of the building on a, on a big screen TV. There's all sorts of, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not the person that's going to come with each and every, but that's the beauty about a capitalist society, which I think you would agree is that you get a lot of different options as to how to consume goods. And I just personally, I believe that making the argument that a lot of these services that look government versus corporation or cooperative, these are just simply different delivery mechanisms for the service and which is going to be more efficient based on what we know and what we've seen in history. Let me, let me interject. Um, When you talk about the marketability of services, uh, you are making the assumption that your society is already organized around private ownership of the means of production and a market economy. And that, that is not a given uh, that, that comes about from the laws already being in place, mandating that you're going to have private ownership of the means of production and a market economy. It, the law assigns to, you know, individual A, individual B, individual C, a, a, a section of land it says you have exclusive control of this no one else can mess with you or you got to answer to us you know so that that private property comes about or is protected by that authoritarian command it's not it's not you know because kyle uh kyle wagner is strong enough to defend his little section of land against the horde you know the state has my back so that's why i think private property actually relies on state enforcement um, and you can't just take that for, for as a given and say, okay, now we can buy and sell law and we can buy and sell justice. It, it, it you know, you're, you're presuming the laws are already in place. I think it's a, it's a improper way to frame, but really quickly, let me address. So is what you're saying that private property is not a positive, right? That, that private property is not extra legal, that private property only exists under the context of the state. Um, you know, some people will say it's natural or whatever. I don't, I don't think so. I think it's basically a man-made rule, just like, uh, pass interference is a man-made rule in football. I think when you have a group of humans and a group of land, um, people say, okay, we're going to divide this up into private, little private squares and everybody's going to have their square. So I don't think that it's just, I don't think it's a given in a social order. And, and if you look at past social orders like uh, Indian tribes or, or whatever, uh, feudalism, you know, it, people organize themselves all kinds of different ways. You know, the communists were like, hey, we don't need private ownership of the means of production. That's not the best way to organize this. So they tried it a completely failed, different it failed model. Miserably. You know, and it, it, it failed, failed miserably, of course, you yeah. know, <laughs> but it, they changed the rules, they changed the laws, which changed their social order, changed the social structure. And they had a different order. And, you know, in that system, if you tried to withhold private property, if you tried to own a factory for profit, they would prosecute you as though that was a crime because that was a crime under that set of law. Yep. So I would say that that I would disagree with you fundamentally. I'd say that that private property is is a natural and positive right 
and that it essentially boils down to, and it gets pretty, pretty rough here. And you got to understand primitive animal, uh, you know, the, the primitive animal, animal mentality and go back pretty far, but it basically boils down to the commitment strategy and that exists in nature as well. The animals in some way, shape or form mark their territory. It used to be far before the government was involved. And, and I happen to know this because I have a family member that, that, uh, that uh, homesteaded land in Iowa before it was a state when it was just simply a territory. And there wasn't, you just went and put up stakes. That's literally how you claimed land. And I could, I think I'll be able to work this amount in the amount of time that I have. So I'm going to put stakes around this amount and, you know, maybe have a little bit of extra land to have a little, uh, a little yard space or something, or to build, you know, to expand upon my home. If I happen to become rich in, back in the day. And if anybody tried to test them, Back in it was called the Wild Wild West for a reason. Reason you kind of had marshals and stuff, but it was virtually lawless, and there was a there. Oh, it wasn't constant like they picture like they show it in the movies. Otherwise, nobody would come. Right? It wasn't just constant murder everywhere. What it actually was was yeah. Sometimes hordes would try to come and come upon somebody's private property, but the desire and the command. And there's actually even scientific studies that say that adrenaline will do things like this will allow people to, if they truly believe that that's their land, that they'll fight off three or four people. And, and what ends up happening is over time, people realize, look, that person is going to be willing to fight to the death. Even if we do overcome, we're going to be so, so badly wounded. that It's going to be really difficult for us to enjoy uh, the treasures of our pillage. So it, it's not – it is not something that's – I mean, it is an extra legal right that comes from one's own ability to essentially claim and defend something long, for a long enough period of time that they begin to develop a sentimental uh, – that they begin to develop a sentimental uh, attitude towards it and are willing to defend it. And on, on second note, I would say that in modern times, if, if you're to move towards anarcho-capitalism – Similar to the way that Mises discusses money and the regression theorem that money had a value because you know today because it had a value yesterday and people saw that they were able to exchange it for certain value yesterday and all the way down the line until you start with with a bunch of different medium mediums of exchange and then over time people realize that universally people are, are willing to accept gold and silver and, and copper and some of those things. So I just think you'd have something similar where the regression theorem kind of works the same way. If you owned it yesterday and you owned it the day before and people know you've owned it for 15 years and there's nobody around saying, no, he doesn't own that, then or, or the vast majority of people around you are saying, yeah, they do own that, that you'd still have private property rights. I will say that you are correct, though, and that there have been cultures and states that have revoked the idea of private property. And then the third thing I'll put to make say to make this point is that land is not the only form of property, and I'm sure that you you know that as well. Yeah, I, I know it, it's uh, just an easy convenience to talk about land. Um, yeah, if you're in a community that generally respects it, I, I suppose it could work. Um, from, uh, so you know, if, if you're in a community of ANCAPs and everybody sort of respects each other's property. Uh, you tend to be fine. It's when you live in a country of social Democrats that want everything for free and they don't respect your uh, financial property that, you know, it, it makes it really tough. You know, we act like everybody respects private property, but we actually live in a society where people a lot of times don't respect 
um, private property. Um, so it, it's tough. And you really need to be able to, to back it up. You know, it's not enough to just be an individual because the individual is really no match for a group. So what ends up happening is in a conflict, people form groups for strength. You know, that you see it in prison. A guy goes into prison and he needs to join a gang so that he can survive. Um, you know, gangs are always going to be more powerful than individuals. And as the larger and larger gangs trump each other, you end up with a government, you know. But it's it's not I, – I wouldn't just say that it's larger and larger because necessarily the the – you know the ally forces in the in World War II were were actually a smaller force as far as troops. Uh, they were more tenacious and had better strategy and executed more properly. And then eventually we dropped a bomb on on Japan that basically was you know devastating enough to where they were willing to say after the second one, okay, maybe we shouldn't do this anymore. Let's just stop. That's enough. So I I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that. That that's that's true all the time. I do think that that you know, and obviously I agree with you that yes, in a in a world where most people are social democrats, it's going to be very hard to do, and that's what most people are in America, and that's one of the problems yeah. is that everybody's trying to appeal to that, and nobody's preaching truth, and it's just a bunch of populism. Yeah, I, I talk about group conflicts a lot. I try to emphasize that, and and national defense is a part of that too. I mean. You know, you could you could consider uh, other countries to be large collectives. Um, you know, if if Russia declared war on us, if North Korea declared war on us, if China declared war on us, you know, it's it's going to be there's going to be a tendency for people to join up and and provide uh, some sort of common defense. You know, Correct. immediately the notion of an individual defense goes out the window, and it's like, hey, we gotta we gotta raise an army here, or these guys are going to wipe us out. And, of course. Um, and, you know, that, that threat is actually real. It is, it is real sometimes. Um, you know, they, they, well, they moved the nuclear missiles into Cuba, and, uh, God, that could have been terrible. So yeah, there my, is the my, threat of other collectors. I'm from Miami, and my parents grew up with that. And, and obviously my, my father disagrees with me on some of the things, mainly for, for purposes like that. And uh, we're, we are coming up. We've got about another another five minutes left in uh, in the hour and we can go a little bit over, but I wanted to, to just let you know that we have that, that little bit of uh, a little bit of time left. So. Okay. Um, well, let's see here. Um, uh, yeah. You said you, you kind of make the assumption that your society is going to be uh, under ANCAP rules. I, that, that, like I said, um, you know, that kind of to me goes against the concept of anarchy. If it's anarchy, I, I'm a sovereign individual and I don't have to listen to anybody. That's the anarchist mindset. But you're talking about private governance, like as if people are going to submit to these corporations as governors, uh, these for-profit corporations. And, um, you know, I, I just don't see that happening. Currently, no. No, I mean, it's, a, it's an uphill battle to fight with, with people's pol- current political ideology, for sure. Um, I have no... Uh, no expectations that in my lifetime something like this would actually be realistic except for on a very small scale and it would be something that would come into existence via opting into and voluntarily and and going into understanding look these are sort of the rules that that are here there's private property you're buying private property you get a stake of um, you know you get a stake of, of the companies that manage these basic services we 
you know, a, a, another point of, of corporate, this is corporate tradition doesn't necessarily have to be the way that it works, but corporate tradition is yeah. a 5% stakeholder group can launch a proxy vote to change management, change board of directors, et cetera. To me, that's much more efficient. You get a chance to go and make your case. I mean, 5%, you could probably, if that were the case in America, where the libertarians could launch a proxy against the, the president, you probably have a lot more active libertarians, you know? So, and then on the opposite side of it, it, it could become a situation, and, and David Friedman talks about this a little bit, where when you're talking about two different enforcement agencies, I mean, we kind of have that now. There's, there or examples of how it might look. If you're an American you know, diplomat or a diplomat from another country in different territories, you basically are under your own rules. And, you're, and typically, I mean, there are cases of diplomats not paying tickets and stuff like that, but you don't really have cases of diplomats going and staking out people's property or murdering people and stuff like that for obvious reasons because we would reject their diplomatic immunity if that occurred. As a community, I've never said – that anarcho-capitalism is free of communities or, gr- or groups coming together to solve problems. The difference is, is that the people voluntarily opt into the rule structure and have an ability to opt out of it. Now, obviously, if the other places that they can go to are not anarcho-capitalists with their rule structure, they're in a predicament, and you end up having trade-offs. Again, not utopia, but a private governance structure would allow for a lot more accountability when it comes to some of the basic essential functions that government provides. And that would be my closing statement. If, if you want to make a quick closing statement, Kyle, go ahead. Yeah. I, I don't think it's possible to let people opt out. I mean, like your, your basic solution there, if people want to opt out of your ANCAP society was they have to leave because they don't want to comply with those rules um, voluntarily. Like they have to leave. That's the same thing we tell, you know, or libertarians get told, if you don't like it, move to Somalia. You know, once you get a social structure established and law and a, and a set of laws, a set of rules for that society established, it's, it's, it doesn't work to just say, okay, you know, Joe, you don't, you don't, these rules don't apply to you. You can go, you know, rob banks or whatever, because you're not subject to the law and you didn't sign the form. So people are born into pre-existing societies. And that's why we grow up, you know, subject to the rules of those societies. We can change them as we become adults. We can get into politics and try to change the laws. But I, I just don't see rules as being uh, voluntary to be um, practical for a social order. Um, I guess one final thing would be marketable functions. You said that all everything the state does can be marketable. I don't know what price you put on somebody's freedom. If you're going to pay to have somebody incarcerated for the rest of their life because they did something wrong, you know, what is the market value of that? I don't know how you price that. To me, that's not an exchange thing. That's a uh, communal decision. It's a, it's a part of the justice system. So, um, you know, I, I hope I've given you some things to, to think about. I, I have not been converted to anarcho-capitalism. I don't know that I've converted you to minarchism, but uh, hopefully I've given you some points to think about. And hopefully as, as well here, um, I, again, probably not going to convert each other, but hopefully it was, I, I definitely made some, I think you made some really great points. Um, not going to be able to finish, finish up rebutting all of them. Obviously that's, you know, the nature of a debate, but I really appreciate you coming on tonight. Kyle it was really fun. I had a good time and I really hope that uh, we can do this again soon and maybe leading up to, 
um, you know, maybe leading up to, you know, some of the midterm elections or something like that. I can have you on a couple times regularly to talk a little bit more about actual strategy and what you'd like to see out of, uh, yeah. out of the libertarian party and the libertarian movement. Yeah. I, I'd encourage you to get involved, to re-engage in politics. I believe that this is a political struggle and that's the way forward. Um, much more so than, than just talking about a narco capitalist theory on Facebook. I, I think we got to win some elections. So uh, please consider that. And thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. All right, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed uh, tonight's debate between Kyle and I. Um, I had a good time. Hopefully we'll have uh, Kyle on again sometime in the future to talk a little bit more about what the strategy for the uh, Libertarian Party is coming forward. And I, I, I hope and I think that um, he was mostly talking about, obviously, I do host a podcast every night, uh, every weeknight talking about uh, libertarian I- ideas and uh, giving a libertarian take on some of the co- you know, things that are going on, particularly in the economy, uh, both here at home and sometimes globally. They talk about other stuff too. So, but I think he, you know, I, I do know what he's talking about. There are a number of people that that, and it sometimes I have become as well that are in the anarcho-capitalist movement that sometimes become apolitical and really don't get engaged and. I would agree that, that politics gives us a good platform, whether or not we're going to win elections. I have my, my own opinions on whether or not that even matters. But um, from standpoint of a platform, he's absolutely correct. And people who have good ideas, good libertarian ideas and principles should get out there and run for office and get involved and try to do more. All right, everybody, I'm going to close off the show for tonight. Hope everybody enjoyed the debate. Um, this is episode 22 of the Macro View. If you haven't checked out our show page, check it out. It's macroviewpodcast.macroviewnews.com slash podcast. On Facebook, facebook.com slash the Macro View. And on Twitter, it's at the Macro View. Share us with your friends and family and help me to spread the logic of liberty. Thank you, everybody, and have a wonderful evening. When it comes to choosing a supermarket, why not stick to the facts? Fact is, Albertsons is just better. Nicer, fresher, faster, and friendlier. Come on in and see for yourself. For a delicious dinner this week, stop by the meat department and get fresh 80% lean ground beef, ground fresh in-store daily, just $2.99 a pound when you buy three pounds or more. And stop by produce and pick up sweet jumbo cantaloupe, two for $3. Fresher meats, sweeter produce, better deals. Albertsons. Fact is, it's just better. You've been listening to The Macro View. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific Time to help spread the logic of liberty. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.